Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Brianne Day. We're at Day Wines in Day, uh, Dundee. It's December 11th, 2019. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Brianne. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you for, for interviewing me. Absolutely. So let's start with the most important question, which is why wine? It's funny because uh, Eric texted me that. He's like, that's going to be your first question. <laughs> I was like, I know this. <laughs> it's fine. Um, from a pretty young age, there I had a very magnetic pull to, to wine and to uh, viticulture. My family is from the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Western Washington, and my folks moved to this area when I was 16. Um, they uh, moved to Tigard, and I had my first uh, my first car and no friends. And I would go out driving and explore, either trying to get lost in Portland or turn the other way and try to get lost out here in wine country. <laughs> and uh, it was very, uh, it was very like exotic and glamorous to me to see um, something that I associated with books that I read about, you know, Europe. Like I was kind of into on a American um, kind of American classics uh, kick for my late teenage years. So I was reading a lot of Hemingway and Steinbeck and. Uh, uh, Fitzgerald and stuff and all those people are always traveling places where there's wine and it was uh, it was very different from the suburban upbringing that I had that I had been raised with um, when I was uh, I had just turned 19 I traveled for the first time internationally and went to Italy and I was actually I was raised very religiously and I was invited to go preach to English-speaking people in Italy and really I just wanted any excuse to go and uh, that was the excuse that I used and which afforded me funding from my parents to go um, and uh, I was there for six weeks and I did the preaching thing for about 20 minutes when I got to Milan and then pretty much was immediately distracted by everything that was Italy um, which included food and art and history and wine and guys and all of it and uh, so I was in uh, northern Italy on Lake Como um, and was tasting in a, uh, a wine shop and the, the guy that owned the wine shop um, said that we could open any bottles that we wanted and I was trying to not be greedy you know so I was like well what's that and what's that and he would tell me these stories about where these wines came from and it was all these northern Italian things and I they were obviously I had no frame of reference I had heard of like Chardonnay and Cabernet and I barely knew that one was white and one was red like it was it was mm -hmm. pretty much no mm -hmm. frame of reference um, but he was saying these things that were completely foreign to me and then saying like oh it only grows in this village they only make it here and I thought that was really fascinating like in the whole world that grape only grows in that village and you know now that I am more experienced in the industry I realize that there are 
grape varieties in Italy that they only call it that in that city and that it does exist in another place. But um, anyhow, it was really, it was really fascinating to me. The thing that really uh, was fascinating to me was as I was traveling on that trip, um, and every, every town I went to, I would ask, I would try to find a local wine shop or something and ask them, what's the thing that is only from here? And what I liked about it was that there was this um, means of cultural expression that they found through uh, a tangible um, thing that other people could also experience. That it, this idea um, was immediately, you know, not lost on me that it was like, I could take these bottles home and I'm actually literally taking a piece of that place home with me and uh, I get to experience that thing with me um, wherever I am. And that was really, uh, I don't know, it was just very attractive to me. It was very interesting to me uh, being a, you know, suburban American that didn't have that, you know, mm -hmm. and the restaurants you see in your town are Applebee's and Outback and stuff. Um, so uh, that stuck with me for a long time and I didn't, I didn't really know what to do with that information or didn't think I, there was anything to do with it. I didn't imagine that I was going to be in, involved in the wine industry. Yeah, so I didn't imagine that I was going to actually have any outlet for that interest, but uh, it stuck with me and so did this really insatiable kind of wanderlust feeling and uh, in my early 20s um, I began uh, saving. I, I, was, I got married really young. I got married not long after that trip and uh, my ex-husband um, uh, was also very young and uh, both of us uh, hadn't gone to college yet and so I was kind of able to uh, find jobs that paid the bills okay. Um, so um, he went back to school to become an engineer and was in school for six years and while he was in school I was saving really really hard to travel and by the time he graduated we had saved a lot more money than I anticipated and uh, I knew that I had this interest in wine. I had been working some like events and things at a couple of different wineries out here and uh, wanted to investigate why I had this draw to it. Mm -hmm. So we left and traveled around the world for what ended up being almost two years to wine producing regions and um, really dove in deep on that. We had this goal of tasting a thousand wines and we had a blog for it and so we documented everything that we tasted and a lot of information about what we were learning and through the course of it, I mean, we tasted more than, we probably tasted 1,500 or something like that and, and documented them. Um, and it was really apparent early on in the travels that certain kinds of wines uh, were more appealing to me and that certain phrases kept coming up that, uh, that the wines that were made in certain ways or grown in certain ways were the wines that kept standing out as being um, just the wines that, that spoke to me. Mm -hmm. um, I, we started in New Zealand and went around New Zealand and Australia first and then Southeast Asia and then uh, most of Western Europe, a tiny bit of Eastern Europe and then South America. And early on, the first, first area in New Zealand, the wineries that were growing grapes organically or biodynamically and that were using native yeasts, those were kind of the two big things that um, 
those were the wines that spoke to me that would give me like a, a, a visceral uh, experience mm -hmm. with, with them. Um, so you mentioned like the visceral experience of, of these certain kinds of wines. Yes, uh, where I actually would feel like, uh, and I still get this with some wines, um, like uh, your nervous system is acknowledging something about them that is uh, interesting, that fires it up, um, both through smelling and through tasting the wine, uh, would, it, it would fire up my nervous system uh, in other ways, <laughs> like tingly feelings in my, on my scalp or you know <laughs> things like that, where you actually feel like you're physically feeling something. And I noticed that every time I had that experience, it was after somebody had said something about it being, uh, you know, we do biodynamic farming. I'm like, what the hell is biodynamic farming? You know, I don't know what that means. Um, so I was really kind of keyed into those kinds of wines. And France, um, thank you. Um, France happened about seven or eight months into the journey. And um, I was in Paris uh, before heading out to, to travel around France and met a guy who was a wine shop owner who specialized in um, what we now know as natural wines. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't really using that phrase at the time, but that's what they would be considered now. And he gave me a book about um, all the natural wines of France. It was in French, but I followed it um, around. And he also wrote down other producers that weren't included in the books that he knew personally who uh, were, uh, he felt I should talk to. Mm -hmm. And so we made a point of actually visiting all of those producers and that really kind of solidified like okay this is this is what I want to do uh, I after talking with vineyard managers and psalms and winemakers and, and all these people associated in the industry I recognized that winemaking was the thing that was the most appealing to me mm -hmm. and I um, knew that I wanted to do it um, in in that manner through fruit that was grown organically or biodynamically and uh, through minimal intervention. And so I came home, uh, well, my ex-husband and I were traveling together. We broke up in Peru. Um, then we went to Costa Rica together anyway and kind of, we're, we're still friends. We're, we somehow got divorced right. Um, but we, uh, we went to Costa Rica for six weeks at, and we're not like, we were like, we're getting divorced when we go home, we knew that but wanted to kind of redefine our friendship and our relationship. So we came home and I was basically a single person for the first time in my adult life because I had gotten together with him when I was 19 um, and wanted to be a winemaker. So I felt, I felt very, uh, a lot of uh, sense of purpose and I felt like I had a lot of direction, um, but I also had an incredible amount of freedom that I hadn't experienced ever, and it was uh, flipping awesome. <laughs> it was great, it was great. So I came home at the beginning of 2008, started classes at Chemeketa, and I was so fired up about uh, practicing what I had been learning and, and everything that I was like, I need to work a harvest. So I um, found a um, winery in New Zealand that needed an intern, and it happened to be a place that I had stopped by when I was there, and so I was familiar with it. It was in Martinborough, and they uh, offered me a job. So I went down to Martinborough and, and did my first harvest and lived in New Zealand for about three months. 
and um, right before I left for New Zealand I uh, met I went to Michael Alberti's shop and met him and totally recognized that he was somebody who knew everything there was to know about the organ wine industry and uh, aligned myself with him and <laughs> kept in touch with him I got his newsletters and um, in one of his newsletters he mentioned that uh, his assistant Pearl was leaving and so I sent him an email and said sounds like you need a new assistant and he was like yeah when are you back and you know Michael uh, gave me a job I called it I mean I, I was not that helpful to Michael. <laughs> Michael was far more helpful to me than I was to him. I was at his shop, you know, Friday nights and assisted him with the in-store tasting that he did on Friday nights, but I just, uh, it's all good. I just asked him, you know, a lot of questions, got a lot of direction from him, met a lot of people in the industry through him, and uh, was able to, um, connect with people that were doing things here in the way that I wanted to learn how to do it. So uh, the first people that I connected with was Brooks and um, I met Chris um, at uh, a tasting that he was uh, pouring at at Pasta Works in Portland and chatted with him about uh, volunteering basically. and. Uh, ended up working for them after I got back from New Zealand over the course of the summer and did vineyard work for them and helped remodel. That was when they were up in the space that John Groshaw's now in mm -hmm. and Vincent um, and so helped him remodel the tasting room over the course of the summer and uh, do other things like that and then worked harvest for them. Um, and doing two harvests in one year uh, was obvious to me as a way of really uh, intensifying my experience. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing that um, almost, I mean, almost entirely every year. That first year after I worked harvest at Brooks, that was the year that David Lett died. And um, there was a, a memorial service for him in McMinnville. And I didn't know him, I'd never met him, but I felt like if I wanted to be a part of this industry that it would be respectful to go to his memorial service. So I met Jason there and Jason called me up uh, like two months later, or later, a month and a half later after that, and said, uh, asked me if I wanted to work for him. And uh, I was kind of like speechless and beside myself and was like, sure, anything you want me to do. And they wanted me to uh, manage their tasting room. Um, and I was like, well, I want to do production, but this is a foot in the door at, you know, the original Willamette Valley Winery, so I'm going to take it. And I thought that perhaps that would lead to some sort of uh, dabbling in production, which it did not, because Jason is extremely uh, specific about how he runs his operation, and I get it now. <laughs> At the time, I was like, come on, man, let me top a barrel or something. But, but uh, he had crew to do that, and he needed me to do the job that he hired me for, and it was good. I mean, I didn't know I was going to own a tasting room in the future, so it was good to have that experience. Um, Frankie, don't eat the blanket. Um, so uh, I worked for Irie all of 2009, and then I uh, did Harvest also in 2009 at Willa Kinsey. And then I uh, left to go travel in Central America, and I, while, I was, while I was working at Irie, um, some folks had come in and mentioned that their son was making wine in Argentina, and 
I was like, that's awesome. I love Argentina. I was there. I want to go back. And uh, so they put me in touch with him. So I was able to get a job down in Mendoza. And I lived in Argentina for three months. And uh, that was in 2010. And then I, um, that's a wine pumper. Um, while I was down there, I uh, was thinking about, I, I always anticipated that I was going to have my own label and, and my own brand. And I uh, was trying to think about other aspects of the industry where I had gaps in my education and needed to know things like how to sell wine, how to market it, how to brand it. Um, and so I started thinking about working in restaurants um, as a means of polling customers on a regular basis and seeing why people made the decisions that they made to buy wine. Um, so while I was in Argentina, I sent out some emails to some Portland restaurants that I thought had wine programs that um, I liked and mostly that were very specifically regional. And I got an email back from Andy Fortgang with Le Pigeon um, and he invited me to come in for an interview. My email was kind of ridiculous. It was like, because I'd never worked in a restaurant before, and so it was like, hey, I'm looking for a summer job, a temporary summer job. What do you think, you know? <laughs> it was like, I, I was ridiculous. Um, fine dining is actually a career. Um, I didn't really get that. I, I was just like, waiting tables. I've eaten in restaurants. I can do this. It's no big deal. How hard could it be? How hard could it be? Um, okay, honey. Um, but Andy happened to have an employee who uh, had to go out on medical leave and he wanted to hold her job open for her. And uh, he also is a giant wine nerd and I didn't, I had no idea, I'd never met the guy, I'd never heard of the guy, so I, I didn't know. But uh, he asked me in for an interview on the day, the second day I got back from Argentina and he said, why do you want to make the, um, the leap from working back a house to working front a house? Or you know, from wine production to front of house, mm -hmm. and uh, I said it was kind of tongue in cheek because whether or not I believe in God, the jury's still out on this. But I said I, I believe wine is God's gift to humans, and I want to make it accessible to people. And he said, "Okay, so we're going to give you a try. There's a really <laughs> steep learning curve, but I'm going to show you how to do." Um, so yeah, so I started working at Le Pigeon um, over that summer. I. Uh, at the end of the three months, it was temporary. I had a, a job lined up to work at Scott Paul, so I worked harvest there. Um, after that harvest, uh, uh, Andy opened Little Bird, and so I started working at Little Bird. And also, concurrently with all of that, I'm still working at Storyteller. Um, I was taking classes at Chemeketa, so any time that I wasn't out of the country doing a harvest, it was you know a couple of jobs and, mm -hmm. and school. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, I worked at Little Bird, um, I left, I, I, I quit that restaurant so many times, I got hired back so many times, <laughs> but uh, I, I quit in late summer of 2011 and went and worked Harvest in Burgundy. Uh, I was in Volnay for Domaine Hubert Vedero and was able to work harvest in Burgundy and Oregon that year because 11 was a late year in Oregon and an early year in Burgundy, so I came home from that experience, which was a freaking amazing, amazing experience, um, and had about two weeks off and then started Harvest at Belpont, which was also an amazing experience. It was like, I had two of my favorite Harvest experiences in the same year. It was, uh, it was super cool. Um, 
that was in 2011 and I, I uh, was still working at Little Bird. I uh, took another job, another full-time job, managing a wine program at another restaurant called Riffle in the Pearl District. And I started working for um, John Groshaw um, and just kind of assisting him in the cellar. Um, and then I ended up you know, working harvest for him. And in 2012, I bought my first fruit, which was two tons of Pinot Noir from Silvershot Vineyard in the Eole Amity Hills. And that wine was in barrel, um, and I was waiting tables one night at Riffle and waited on some folks that, uh, um, just this nice group of older people. Um, and one of the guys asked me about my grape tattoo. I have a big grape tattoo on my arm. Um, and uh, so I basically told him through the course of their dinner about my experiences leading up to that point, which is what I just told you guys, <laughs> although it was probably faster and with less interruptions. But uh, um, he started asking me more and more questions that got... Um, so through the course of their dinner, um, his questions became more um, business focused mm -hmm. and I had spent the last six months writing a very, very detailed business plan and a 10-year projected budget and was kind of waiting for somebody to, to ask me some questions like that and uh, so uh, had answers for him and at the end of his dinner, he kind of leaned back and goes, I'm going to be your backer. And a lot of thoughts went through my head at that moment. Most of them were skeptical. Most of them were like, this guy's had a couple bottles of wine. He's feeling generous. Take this with a grain of salt. He has no idea what he's getting into mm -hmm. or how expensive it is. Like, I've had other people when I was waiting on them be like, oh, we're going to support you. We're going to buy, you know cases of your wine, we'll be in your wine, and it never materialized into anything. So I was just like, okay, cool, thanks, yep, you're going to be my backer, sure, you know. <laughs> I got a maid. Um, but their friends that they were with kind of took me aside and said, you should really pay attention when this guy says something, he means it. He's not going to throw that around and, and they can do it. Mm -hmm. So, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I made an appointment with him to meet later in the week and present my business plan to them. and. I think it was two or three days later, and I thought about, do I try to not scare them off and just try to get funding for the 2013 vintage, which would be sweet, or do I swing for the fences and give them this full business plan that I have developed and like see what happens, you know? And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, if this scares them off, if I, if I go big and it scares them off, uh, they're probably not the right people, mm -hmm. and I can afford the two that I'm more. I was literally working four jobs. I was like, I can afford the 2013 vintage. I can make that happen. Um, but if I go big and they say yes, my whole life is going to be completely different. I, just on a totally different trajectory, you know. Um, so I did. I just gave them the really big version of the of the plan, which included. A, biz, a building about this big. I think I specifically said about 15,000 square feet in my business plan and wanted to have it be a shared space and um, 
other things that were in the business plan that I haven't yet had the time to make happen, but I have the means to now. You like I have the I have the space to do things um, that I've been wanting to do. Just haven't had the opportunity yet. Um, but they were like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. Let's do it. And uh, so they helped me. Um, helped back the 2013 vintage which I made about 450 cases in and then uh, I was able to get some really good um, distribution in place pretty early on in Chicago and New York and feeling um, pretty solid in those two markets um, gave me the push to grow more significantly in 2014 plus there was a glut of fruit and I could get a lot of stuff for cheap in 2014 and so it just seemed like a good year to to make a leap so I uh, jumped up from 450 cases to about 3,000 cases in 2014 and uh, had to find a lot more markets to sell in and so uh, grew my grew my uh, out-of-state distribution pretty significantly that year and then Richard said, okay, you grew the brand, now it's time to find a building. And I was like, oh, he was serious about that too. <laughs> okay then, let's do this. And so we started looking, I anticipated that I was gonna be doing this project in Portland in an urban wine, mm -hmm. wine setting. I live in Portland still. Um, but as I started looking around the city of Portland, uh, pricing was pretty prohibitive on buildings and uh, pricing on um, development within the city of Portland is nuts. It's, uh, you know, $50,000 to hook into the sewer and water. It was like, it was ridiculous. Uh, so I started looking out here in this area um, and found this building, um, which was a vitamin production facility. And uh, it, I thought, well, it's in the heart of wine country. It's right on 99. Um, this could really make sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, I knew that I was going to be doing something a little bit different in terms of the wines that I was making, and I thought having something to be a counterpoint in the heart of wine country could be really interesting for people, especially consumers. Um, so we got this building and uh, closed on it July 15th, 2015, and remodeled the production area and got my federal permit in time to bring fruit in by the end of August, wow. six weeks later. Wow. Um, and that, over there, was a, it was just a warehouse. It was just like a concrete slab warehouse. So we tore out the floors, put in floor drains, put in three-phase power. So I was making, I made 4,000, 4,500 cases that year, with a lot more than I, um, was prepared to. Uh, I had a part-time uh, assistant, um, of course during harvest he was full-time, and I had an intern, Ross Maloof, who now has his own label and has been making wine here also ever since. Hey, stop it. Um, and uh, I had seven winery clients here also. Um, and it was uh, <laughs> I won't say shit show. Um, it worked. Everything went fine. Like we have lots of space, so that helps. Um, I think if we had less space, it could have felt a lot more chaotic than it did. Um, it 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 worked, uh, but in retrospect, it's so much more dialed in now that I look back on it. Like, wow, that was nuts. Um, 
after Harvest wrapped up in 2015, we started um, remodeling the rest of the building later on in the winter, um, which involved tearing out a lot of rooms over um, in the barrel room and completely gutting this part portion of the building, which was previously these like horrible little moldy smelling offices. Um, so we just completely gutted all of that and uh, worked with a really cool architectural firm in Portland called Fieldwork Design and they, uh, we were, Yamhill County is tremendously easy to work with, especially in comparison to City of Portland. Um, but we had some grandfathered permissions because this building has been here so long. It was an auction house originally and then was a vitamin place and so it's been around I think this building's been around since like the 50s okay. um, so we had some grandfathered permissions and if we changed the footprint of the building those permissions would go away and we'd have to reapply for for um, non-conditional or non-conforming use those kinds of things so we didn't change the footprint of the building at all and that's one reason why we have so much outside space patio space um, for the tasting room as opposed to indoor space, um, which to me are the real selling season in Oregon is May through September, and that's usually pretty decent weather anyway, so that's fine, you know. Um, anyhow, so we, uh, we started working on that. Um, I expanded to about 15 out-of-state markets and was doing all of my out-of-state sales, and Right after harvest in 2016, I uh, discovered I was pregnant. I was, I was basically right around this time of year, yeah, uh, in 2016. And uh, how much do I want on record? <laughs> that was the filter just going up. Um, I, uh, uh, I, I, Broke up with Vigo's dad right after I found out I was pregnant. So I went through the whole thing as a single single person, which was great. It was way easier than it would have been if I had been in the relationship. Um, we got the uh, tasting room finished uh, in about April, I think, of that year. And oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> and I, uh, so I opened the tasting <laughs> opened the tasting room when I was like six or seven months pregnant, um, hired my first full-time employee, um, Nate Wall, who now is the uh, winemaker down at Troon, and had Vigo August 11th, uh, 2017, and then started Harvest four weeks later. <laughs> that was nuts. It was crazy. Um, and it's felt like a blur ever since. <laughs> but got through the 2017 Harvest, um, hired a full-time um, direct-to-consumer salesperson, uh, so now I have uh, two full-time salespeople or um, employees, and uh, one part-time who's kind of full-time also, who's working in the in the tasting room. So three employees now, and we're in 20 out-of-state markets and uh, three other countries, and. Vigo came with me to 10 states last year, and uh, you know, this is what we're doing. So that about brings you up to speed, I think. That is an incredible story. Hey, thanks. We're making uh, about 6,000 cases now. Uh, work with, um, I counted them up this year, 
uh, 17 vineyards, 17 grape varieties, and 17 wines. I don't know how that happened. It was coincidence, but that's, uh, that's what happened this year. So let's talk about that uh, before we do anything else. I'm curious, obviously you talked about being a counterpoint to the rest of wine country and you had this idea of, of different than the, the, your neighbors. So tell me why all the varieties? Why all the different types of wines? Yep, uh, it's kind of multi, there's multi, multiple reasons for that. Um, the travel definitely had a big thing, a big, initially a big uh, reason for that because I got exposed to so many different varieties and fell in love with so many different varieties through the course of traveling and recognized similarities uh, in a lot of places around the uh, around the earth to different areas of Oregon. Oregon is a big place. We have about half the total um, landmass that France has and you think about how many varieties of grapes are grown in France. Um, it would be silly to think only two or three varieties could do well in Oregon mm -hmm. when we are bigger than most European countries. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, we, we have the ability. Um, when I worked in the restaurants, um, I think I, f I found... Um, so, when I worked in the restaurants, I... F Thanks, honey. Um, I, I, uh, I, f I found that there are a lot of different varieties that pair really well with food, and I always really wanted um, high-end restaurants to be my bread and butter in terms of who I sell to. Uh, not owning my own vineyards gives me this really uh, cool freedom and versatility to make changes uh, very quickly and to change to the, to the market very quickly. So when I, I'm doing out-of-state sales and I see what things my customers are putting on their on their wine programs, um, uh, it's like, well, they're making Chenin Blanc, they're putting Chenin Blanc all over their wine program from the Loire. Mm -hmm. Why can't we grow Chenin Blanc in the Northwest? We probably can. And there are very small examples of Chenin Blanc being grown in the Northwest. Um, uh, but, it's, you know, that applies to so many different varieties of grapes and, uh, and the purpose that they serve in wine programs and restaurants and not having you know, not having vineyards makes me extremely versatile and, and to quickly be able to respond to the needs of the market. I, we made a wine this year because my distributor in New York asked, like, could you make, because I make these uh, kind of more entry-level price point uh, red and white called Vendée Rouge and Vendée Blanc, and my New York distributor specifically requested, could you make an orange wine at that price point? And I was thinking about fruit sources that I work with and um, what could be interesting and was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And you know, six months later, I can be like, here it is in bottle, there you go. Like it's, it's a pretty sweet uh, ability to, that it, it's, not, uh, it's not something that wineries typically can do, um, responding really fast like that because mm -hmm. normally you have to plant your fruit, you get to see after three years if it's gonna produce something usable and then make it, then try to get it out into the market. It's a, it's a whole, you know, sure. different thing. Sure. Was there a, do you have a, a, a favorite to work with, a favorite region, a favorite varietal? Is, is it kind of, is it purely responding to market or do you have something that you really want to bring forward? I mean, it's not, none of it is purely responding to market. Um, the, when I started the project, I thought I would only be making Pinot Noir. Um, I, what I like about Pinot is that it is such a, a clear 
and, and transparent conduit of place. And uh, being from the Pacific Northwest and really uh, that initial um, thing that spoke to me when I was in Italy about wine, about it being a, a expression, a cultural expression, I wanted to do something that felt like a cultural expression of this place that I grew up in. Um, I find that working through different grape, with different grape varieties allows for a different, um, different conversation and different types of, of expression of a place. I don't feel that all of Oregon can be summed up through Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. Um, I, I think that there is a huge amount of diversity in the state in terms of uh, geographical diversity, in terms of political diversity, um, maybe not so much racial diversity, but you know, whatever. <laughs> that will come with time, I hope. Um, but I, I, I want to show a lot of different faces of, of Oregon through my wines. And uh, having all this different great material to work with is, um, it's a really fun way to do it. So I'm curious, I want to go back a little bit to your, your, your first harvest, uh, 2008? Is yep. that what I wrote down? 2008, I have a lot of notes here. Uh, tell me about, uh, you, you'd spend this time traveling, you tasted all this wine, you'd been a consumer, you'd been, you'd, you kind of had, you had a knowledge. Tell me about your first time on the production side and, and, and what made you want to continue? Uh, it was the hardest thing I had ever done. My first harvest was the hardest harvest out of all of them. New Zealand doesn't have quite so much of the uh, OSHA guidelines in place, and uh, <laughs> it was ridiculous some of the things that I that I did. Um, we didn't have a. Uh, I'm really sorry about my dog. I'm sorry. Um, we didn't have a forklift with a bin dumper, for example. So loading the press was all done by hand, and I was the bottom man on that totem pole so I had to be the person that loaded like all the F FYBs into the press overhand like this for we made a lot of Sauv Blanc there um, so it was it was crazy um, it was uh, yeah it was phys physically very very demanding um, but also really really re rewarding I, I I like to be physical. I, I like to be outside and do sports, and I liked how much um, working in that way uh, appealed to so many different parts of my personality. It, it was scientific, it was artistic, it was sensory based. Um, I felt like every single um, part of my body was being used in some way mm -hmm. and was fired up, and it was really, really stimulating. Mm -hmm. um, it's exhausting, and at the end of harvest, when when everything in your body is fired up into an intense level for a period of time, you get to the end of that period of time, and it's exhaustion like I've never experienced before also, but uh, it just was kind of addicting. It mm -hmm. just became kind of addicting um, to, to have that experience and uh, to feel so much. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm so you mentioned this a little bit when you're talking about Oregon and all the, all it has to offer, and, and your idea of this kind of the, the kind of uh, cultural experience and cultural expression. Yeah. But tell me how that kind of like your winemaking philosophy. How would you describe your winemaking philosophy that developed over the years? Um, well, my my. Winemaking philosophy initially, you're going to hate it as soon as you get in it. You're going to ask me to get you out. You always do. Um, 
it was all about purity, and it is all about purity, but that was uh, the wanting to make something that was a, an expression of a place was um, really what drove me initially. Um, and trying to determine ways of making wine that uh, enabled that and created that. So, so really wanting to make wines that were a piece of a place. Um, that were a time capsule of a, of a time and a vintage was what I was going for uh, initially and what I still strive for. Um, when I started, uh, I felt like um, a little bit more dogmatic about the uh, natural, natural wine approach. Um, I'm more dogmatic about farming than I am about um, PPMs of SO2 at this point. Um, I, I think that there's a, something to be said for um, responding individually to the needs of each wine um, and, and each fruit and each vintage. And, and certainly um, through, the, um, through the course of what I've been doing, I have seen four or five fairly drama-free and easy harvests, and uh, this year was something different from that, and uh, it, it, it challenges um, the idea that you can be dogmatic about any approach when uh, different vineyards and different, different situations um, come up. So tell me about that kind of the development of that, where you're, you're, you kind of think you're going to be dogmatic a certain way and then you have to kind of learn how to respond. Is there a, was it a kind of a gradual process where you're like, well, okay, I'll just try this, or I'll try this? Or I still am fairly, I mean, by all intents and purposes, would be considered a natural wine producer. We, we're not using uh, really much of anything in the wines. Um, but. I also don't want to look around and judge what other people are doing or the decisions that they make. I, I recognize that running a business is uh, complicated and personal and stressful and however people need to, to do that, to make their wines how it suits them is, is what they need to do. So I guess uh, I do have some personal things about how I make my wine and things that I won't do, but um, I don't think that dogma needs to be, uh, I don't need to, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not important in the grand scheme of things, you know what I mean? It's like... Talk, talk a little bit about some of the, of the videos you work with. You talk about being more dogmatic about grapes and, and growing practices. So what do you look for with your, with your grapes and your vineyards? Um, as a, I mean, to put it into, uh, you know, one classification, you know, uh, I look for organic or biodynamic farming and I would say 85-90% of the vineyards that I work with are farmed organic, organically or biodynamically. Um, but as an as a absolute minimum, uh, glyphosate free. Mm -hmm. And when I first started out, um, I didn't really feel like I had the uh, ability to make requests um, of growers that they, you know, 
do anything special for me because I felt like I was such small potatoes that I couldn't really, I didn't have the um, ability to make requests. And I also am uh, aware that like I'm not a farmer and that my growers know more about farming than I do. And um, so I felt kind of deferential to them mm -hmm. to be like, well, you know your site, you know what you think needs to be done here. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna defer because uh, I, I, I don't know. I just felt like it would be uh, kind of crazy for me to come in and be like uh, new to the industry, not a farmer, and to be like, okay, farmer man, you've been farming this site for 30 years, but I'm gonna tell you what I think you should be doing and what's best. And I just wasn't respectful, so. Um, I listened a lot more when I was starting off and talked to my growers about why they were doing what they were doing and eventually um, felt like I was experienced enough and uh, a big enough purchaser that I could make some requests about some things because uh, there are some things that farmers do too because they've always done it mm -hmm. and that's what's worked for them and they don't feel like making changes and uh, nobody asked them to do anything different. Mm -hmm. um, but more and more, there are more of us um, in the industry that are purchasing fruit who are making similar requests. And so, you know, going to a grower and saying, uh, could you please stop using glyphosate, um, isn't the, uh, the big deal request that it used to be. They're getting, more and more farmers are used to getting asked those things and are, there are more products available on the market that uh, are either, uh, you know, not glyphosate free, um, organic, considered organic certified um, herbicides, or there's other, other methods of, uh, of controlling weeds, thank you, that, uh, thank you, that don't involve herbicides at all. Mm -hmm. And that's really kind of the, the best goal. Mm -hmm. um, I've had growers tell me that they could do that. I have one grower up in Shehala Mountain that I buy quite a bit of fruit from and she just planted uh, an acre of gamay for me also. Um, and she said, I would like to switch to organic, but it's gonna make your prices go up a little bit. Can you do that? And I'm like, I gotta put my money where my mouth is. You know, I can't just ask the farmers to absorb all of that um, when I know that their margins are slim also. So if it means that much to me, I gotta, put my money where my mouth is and the buyers got to put their money where their mouth is too. If they value uh, natural wines, if they value um, uh, farming that's uh, better for the planet and everything, it, it's, it's a trickle down. Everybody has to do it. Everybody's got to kind of pick up a little bit. It can't be just the winery or just the farmer. It, it has to be everybody. So, you know, if my bottles have to cost $2 more, like, big deal. So. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Gamay there. Is there. Are there other varietals you're looking forward to working with uh, yes. coming on the horizon? I have, uh, I have to follow up on one of these um, for Southern Oregon, but right now I have Aligote, Gamay, and Zabibo all in the ground specifically for us. Oh, wow, that's cool. And we have some Neradavala that's going to be going in the ground also. So some pretty some pretty interesting stuff yep. there. Why? <laughs> what, what about those made you made you want to plant them? Make them, make them. Um, the uh, French grape experiment in Oregon is happening and is, is uh, going really well. 
there's been very little experimentation with Italian varieties, so I have a lot of ex um, a lot of uh, curiosity about Italian varieties, especially in Southern Oregon. So the Zabibo is in the Applegate Valley, and the Nera Diablo is going in the Applegate Valley. Um, I think Southern Oregon is a, a even more untapped resource than uh, than the Willamette Valley, and we don't know what we can do. We don't know what's going to be the, the champion grape of Southern Oregon, if there is one. Uh, Rhone varieties seem to do really well down there, but maybe there's other things. Maybe Sicilian varieties will do really well, you know? We don't know. So that's what we're, that's what we're trying to find out. So in addition to all the different varietals and all the different types of wine you're making, you also have all these interesting names and labels you've come up with for yeah. all your different wines. Tell me about that process and, and the, uh, the design and naming of, of your various labels. Sure. Um, most of my wines are single vineyard wines. Um, making a, a time capsule of a time and place is still a goal for every single wine that I make. Um, sweetie, I want you to stop it. No. I want you to stop. Um, so the majority of my, a lot of my labels have uh, this like tree thing with a different sky in the background mm -hmm. or you can kind of see a little tree right here. This is a thing that we do and those are ones that we do on all of our single vineyard wines uh, and they're named very straightforwardly. Belpont Vineyard Chardonnay, Maze Vineyard, you know, Applegate Valley. Um, those are a little bit more straightforward. Um, the tree thing and stuff was because I wanted to make wines that are an expression of the Pacific Northwest and I want that to be obvious from the outset. Um, this is no, no judgment on anybody else in the world, but there are a lot of wineries that like to uh, pattern after very classic um, French style things and we are not France. I am like kind of... Uh, outspokenly proud of being an American winery and being specifically an Oregon winery. Uh, all of our fruit comes from Oregon. I probably will never buy from Washington. I'd be more likely to buy from like the Sierras if I was going to go anywhere else. Um, but it's, uh, we're, you know, an American winery and an Oregon winery and um, I will never say that my wines are Burgundian. They are not from Burgundy, so <laughs> that's impossible. Um, so it's, uh, I want the labeling and the um, advertising to be uh, very um, reminiscent of that. Mm -hmm. For the wines that I make that are more esoteric or that are uh, more um, style, like, like style driven, mm -hmm. um, I've gotten a little bit more creative with some of the names. I, I, uh, I feel like I make wines either in a very classic way or in a very creative way. Those are kind of the two sides that, that I like to play. Um, so uh, there are names like Hawk and Deuce and Running Bear. Those are both uh, nicknames for my backers. Um, apparently his uh, high school or not high school college nickname was Hawk and she was 22 when they met, so he used to call her Double Deuce, and then it just got shortened to Deuce, although she claims it's because she's his second wife that she's Deuce. Um, but in any case, that's a, a, a nod to them and a thank you to them. Running Bear is also another one to, to Richard, which was, I think he was a frat boy. He's, he's got all these, like, 
he's from the Midwest. They're from Michigan. They use all these like nicknames, running bear and stuff. So anyhow, um, for his 75th birthday, I for that was the first vintage I made of that wine, and so I named it for him as like a birthday present. Um, but uh, broken destimmer from Johan Vineyards. That was because the destimmer broke the day that that fruit came in, and its whole cluster mm-hmm. and by necessity. It's fairly straightforward. <laughs> um, what are other ones? Petite Doré, Adoré, that's one named for Vigo. That's mm-hmm. the first one I've released named for him. So it means a uh, little golden adored one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, normally I won't name my wines French words, but I liked that it rhymed. I liked the Doré, Adoré thing. Mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. it was kind of cute. Uh, Queen D is named for my sister, and I tried to make that wine for her palate. She likes Vendée Blanc better, but whatever. Um, <laughs> TNT is Altenat, and the picking bins all say TNT on them whenever they come up, and it stuck. It was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, so there's a variety of reasons for the different names. I think Tears of Vulcan, which is not up here because it's sold out, um, is probably my, um, and Mamacita are two of my uh, more, uh, you know, you can't really figure out why those two are called what they're called. Um, and they're also two of my more creative wines that I uh, definitely was born out of a, a creative thing. Uh, Mamacita was named by my iPhone because uh, it was made out of Malvasia and I was texting a bunch about the Malvasia fruit and my phone kept correcting it to Mamacita every time. So that stuck and that became Mamacita. Um, Tears of Vulcan is a wine that uh, I was drinking a lot of textural, aromatic, um, skin contact white wines from Sicily uh, the first year I made that wine and was trying to find fruit in Oregon that I could do something similar with Mm -hmm. and found a vineyard called Le Beau Vineyard up in Chehala Mountain that's growing Viognier and Pinot Gris and I thought well skin contact Viognier could be really interesting let's see what this is like I've never had that. Um, so that first year was a total experiment. It's uh, co-fermented Viognier and Pinot Gris, and then I get Muscat from a neighboring site um, that I blend into it. And I was thinking about what, if anything, do Oregon and Sicily have in common? And the only thing I could come up with was uh, volcanic soils. And so I named it as a homage to the god of volcanoes, but also because uh, one of the first orange wines I had ever had was uh, called um, Pheasant's Tears from Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so the tears part was kind of a, a little nod to Pheasant's Tears and uh, that's how that all came about. So like you, like, I, like you say, it uses all of, all of, all of the parts of your brain and, and, and body when you're, when you're naming wines. Yeah, when I'm naming uh, anybody, that's uh, Vigo's name was <laughs> a similar process. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's just how I work. <laughs> You talked a little bit about about day camp here and 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 your initial you, you, setting it up as a kind of a co-op space and having other winemakers here. So tell me about you mentioned it being rough at first and, and having gotten smoother. Tell me about that, the kind of process of having other people under your roof and and, and being that kind of cooperative space. Sure. Um, uh, everybody that's moved in for the most part has been uh, kind of of a similar mindset in terms of how they make wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
people have approached me in maybe one or two situations I went to people and was like hey I've got space I'd love to have you in the building that kind of thing but for the most part people have come to me um, because they need space and because they are aware of how I make wine and uh, want to be around people that do things in a similar way um, it's uh, Logistically can be challenging depending on the personalities that are in the building uh, and also depending on the quantity that people are making. Anytime somebody is bringing in larger quantities, they inherently are going to have more of an impact on the uh, flow of operations during harvest. And uh, for the most part, it's been um, pretty smooth. Um, there's just been a, a couple of, uh, of things where you have to try to work through either practices in the in the winery or uh, philosophical differences or things like that um, so uh, it's been an opportunity to get to know a lot of my um, colleagues and people that are at similar phases in uh, in their business development and understand uh, what they're doing and why they're doing and and it made me feel uh, it makes me feel more connected to the industry in that way I, I think without that it would be easy to get very wrapped up in your own project and not be especially like I I'm a, I'm kind of a more introverted person when I'm not on the road doing sales and like putting on that face mm -hmm. uh, I'm a lot more of a homebody and stuff and I think it would be a stretch for me to um, be a reaching out to other people and finding out what they're doing. So I, I appreciate that I've had that opportunity to... Uh, you've, been, uh, you've, you've been labeled a, a winemaker to watch recently. You've been getting a lot of good publicity lately. Um, uh, tell me about... Oh, I dropped a mic. That's okay. There it is. T tell me about your, your kind of new exposure and new, new, new notoriety in the wine world and how, that, how, how that's affecting you. Um, well... Um, I think that something broke. I'm sorry. It's a little loose, but okay. Um, I have been pretty fortunate in terms of uh, organically getting press. Um, I don't have a, a publicist or anybody that works for me that goes out looking for that stuff. So uh, when it happens, it's. Um, a surprise and uh, helpful it's exceedingly helpful for sales uh, I don't know where my sales would be without some of the the press but it's been happening since almost my first vintage you know um, uh, I think one of the first uh, things that kind of popped up was um, I, I showed my wine, my very first vintage, at Roth Fair in London, and I got included in Isabel's book. Mm -hmm. um, and after that, it was like I was just a more common name in that um, circle of, mm -hmm. of, of, the, of the, the wine industry. Um, and so uh, it's been happening uh, kind of consistently throughout the short period of time that I've had a winery um, the last seven years and uh, I didn't know that that's what um, the San Francisco Chronicle was interviewing me for they didn't tell me that um, they just 
Esther came by at the beginning of harvest and chatted, and I, I had met her before, uh, so I just figured she was in the area and wanted, you know, wanted to see what was up, that kind of thing. Um, so that was a surprise to me um, when that happened. But uh, yeah, I feel very thankful and uh, surprised and uh, mostly grateful <laughs> when it happens, you know, and why Eric Asimov would come here and, and taste through my wines with me and chat with me. Like, that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me, you know. Um, I, I think uh, being um, connected close to uh, somebody like Michael Alberti who now obviously writes for the Oregonian although Michael has been extremely professional about not letting friendships dictate how what he writes and stuff like that um, but working for him I met Jancis Robinson through him um, I met Stephen Spurrier I met uh, a lot of like the old school mainstay people uh, become close to Elaine Brown and uh, it's you know, it's just, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, but I feel very lucky about it, you know. Um, if they find what we're doing to be interesting enough to write about, I'm thankful that that's the case because it really, really helps with sales. It really, really does. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, uh, where do you see yourself and, and Day Wines heading in the future? What, is, what do you see as you look, say, 10 years down the road for yourself and well, your brand? hopefully... Jackson family will approach me and try offer me a lot of money for my brand and I will take it and go move to southern France. Go live on the beach. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if that doesn't happen, then uh, I see us topping out around like 10,000 cases. I don't really want to get bigger than that. Um, the more uh, the more you make, the more you have to sell and the more employees you have to hire. And I think it could get very complicated. Um, and I don't want my life to be any more complicated than it is. So uh, I think 10,000 is about where, where we could top out with having a small crew and still being able to, mm -hmm. to do that. Um, I might, I, I, the idea of having my own vineyard has definitely um, been occurring to me more and more, especially since I became a mom prior to becoming a mom. I think because I valued my freedom so much, I, I didn't want to be tied down by a vineyard, but now I have no freedom, so I might as well get a vineyard. It's kind of like why I got a dog. Um, it was like, well, we can't do anything anyway, so might as well get a dog. Um, but also having the uh, ability to um, have a piece of land that is mine, that I'm growing things that I can't get anybody else to grow for me, mm -hmm. and that I can give to my son uh, if he wants it is uh, is definitely really appealing. So so that idea has been present in my mind quite a lot. Um, in terms of which wines I make and what I'm going to continue to make, and I, I can't really exactly predict that because um, the market dictates some of that. My own kind of whim dictates some of that, and I can't really predict what that's going to be. Um, but uh, but I know that there's going to always be some level of experimentation and new things and uh, um, and trying things out that you know I know that's always going to be a part of the brand. Does it add any? Does it 
add any pressure to you feeling like you, you've gotten this kind of notoriety as an experimental, as a natural winemaker? Do you feel like you have to keep pushing or do you feel like at some point you'll be able to just sort of do what you want to do and not worry about? Oh, I, but I am doing what I want to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the, the experimenting and stuff is purely what I want to do. Um, it's great that that people appreciate that and that that's what I'm becoming known for, but that's all completely genuine and, and what I, it's, so, no, I hope I never stop doing that, but that's more because that's that's the thing that is driving me, you know, than, uh, than driving the brand. I, I think my, I think I drive the brand, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I don't really see that changing. I get the biggest kick out of the wines that are the new wines that are, those are the barrels that I visit the most in, in the barrel room. Like, well, what is this? I don't know what this is. Like, what's it gonna be, you know? The, the uh, idea of discovery is, is way more interesting to me than, uh, than predictability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about as you look at the at Oregon wine industry and, and what you've seen change since you become a part of it and, and kind of what you see as you look ahead for it? It's changed quite dramatically in the 10 years that I've been a part of it. Um, when I, or, or I didn't know about things that I know about now. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, there are vineyards that I'm sourcing from that are 25 years old that are growing Viognier and Syrah in the Willamette Valley um, or that are growing... Uh, you know, I've, there's vineyards that are 45 years old in, in the Applegate Valley where I'm getting Tanat from. So people have been experimenting longer um, than when I was aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does feel like I was, when I started 10 years ago, um, Pinot Noir was uh, in a different place than it is now. Um, it's still the bread and butter of Oregon, and it's my bread and butter too, really. Um, but it's uh, it's changed in the marketplace, and there people are buying wine. Younger people are buying wine differently than than their parents did, um, and uh, my brand seems to appeal to those young to the millennial kind of crowd. Uh, I think price point dictates that. I think wanting something new dicta dictates that. Um, so I think as the generation, uh, generationally, things are shifting and changing, um, it's affecting all kinds of commerce and, and wine is a part of that. Mm -hmm. um, so if it, maybe that the past 10 years, that shift away from things that are uh, t tried and true and tested and point driven and I feel like my parents and their their generation bought buy things based on safety and security and like this is going to be good i know what it's going to be it's going to you know there are, there's 95 points on it i'm going to like it and i feel like um my generation and younger than me are buying based more on their own hopefully on their own experiences i i i do think that that's a very idealistic way of putting it because I do think that the younger generation is also um, susceptible to marketing and to uh, wanting to be cool and those kinds of things. Um, but, but there does seem to be more of a thirst, uh, literally and figuratively, for, um, 
for for new, for what's new, what's different, what's untested, mm -hmm. and uh, that's affecting this industry. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's gonna. I don't think all of Oregon is going to shift to meet those needs because uh, I don't think that the millennial wine drinkers can support all of the wine industry. I think there's a portion of us that are going to be, you know, selling to to those people, um, and maybe that portion will continue to grow a little bit, especially as uh, that generation grows up and starts getting better jobs and spending more money. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's. It's uh, it's just changing. It's just it's just shifting um, ideas. Uh, I'm a, a person who is uh, like, yeah. I think I'm good at networking and at finding out about things and um, jumping on it and making making decisions. Like, yeah, I'm gonna take that fruit. Yeah, I want all of it. I don't want anybody else to have that fruit. And and kind of uh, doing that. And there are other people like Chad Stock who is going out and making his own experiments mm -hmm. and his planting his own fruit. And there's something to be said for that that's very, um, I, I respect that a lot. Um, and uh, more and more hopefully there are people like in our, in our little uh, subset of the industry that are gonna be um, putting down their own roots and not just uh, not just um, you know shopping for fruit like we have been mm -hmm. so if you were if someone came to you today and said they wanted to join the Oregon wine industry what would your words of wisdom for them be um, I've had people say that I've had interns say that and I always ask them what what their values are like because determining your place within the wine industry um, is uh, I think taking the time to really figure that out is going to be the difference between being successful and not and being happy or not mm -hmm. um, we there was a um, Ross had a guy working for him this year named Brandon who's worked a couple of harvests now in production and he said that this year was the last year that he was going to be doing production and he was like this isn't the part of the industry that's for me he's like I love selling wine to people I love introducing things and educating people about wine but this part of the industry is not the part of it for me and I appreciate um, appreciate that he is self-aware enough to mm -hmm. take that away from his experience with production um, I think there's a lot of reasons why people find their way within the industry but if you really take your time and investigate it and figure out your place within it there it's all valid you know if you're a psalm that's valid if you're a, a server that's valid if you're a seller rat that's valid it's all it's all valid it just depends on what people like and and will you stop it you stop it sit down uh, it, you know their success is going to depend on um, finding what fits for them so that actually is all the questions that I have for you. Oh, okay, is there cool. <laughs> anything I didn't ask that I should have asked, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered here today? I um, well, I'm actually pleasantly surprised, and maybe I shouldn't even bring it up, but 
that you didn't ask about what's it like to be a woman in the wine industry because that's what everybody wants to talk about right now. So that used to be kind of a staple of these interviews uh -huh. and then there are enough women in wine now that we don't feel the need to ask it as much. Right. If it comes up, it comes up, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know because I've never it. been a man in the wine industry, <laughs> so I don't know what it's like to be a woman. It's just... It just is. It is. just is. Yeah. It just is. And... and uh, I just know that I don't want to be called a woman winemaker because I don't think that has anything to do with it for me. So just a winemaker's fine. Okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, it's like I'm not going around calling anybody else a male winemaker. A male winemaker, yeah, that's so. kind of weird. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today for navigating the obstacles to yeah, having Yeah, and I apologize for my children. <laughs> it's all good. Our, we're, our video editor's going to have a blast with this one. So. <laughs> So, so thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate your time and your stories today. Yeah, and, and, thank you for coming out here to chat with me. Thank you. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.